Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. It is 7.07 in the Twin Cities, still six degrees outside. Uh, obviously, all of us have just been transfixed, horrified by the story of Jamie Kloss, also inspired by the bravery of this girl to, to get out and to seek help after 88 days in captivity. Uh, but it, it reminds us just of how there are still some very bad actors and bad people in this world. And it's not just obviously that story making headlines across the country, but um, earlier in our own newscast, we heard a story about a former southeastern Minnesota police officer who pled guilty to sexual assault charges. Uh, he was a former police officer in Casson, Minnesota. He was charged in Rice, Dodge, and Olmstead counties. And authorities say he had abused girls over a 20-year period. So there are so many of these cases out there and there are places though that are there to help. Uh, nationally, there's the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and one of the pioneers anywhere is of course the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center founded by uh, the Wetterling family in the aftermath of their son Jacob's disappearance uh, and abduction and finally we find out what happened to, to Jacob uh, just a couple of years ago. But the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center is out there in schools. They are out there doing work 24-7 to try and, and spread awareness and also education. And also they've got resources to help people. Allison Fay is the longtime director of the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center. And I'm thrilled to have Allison on right now. Allison, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, it's, it's, it's so great to, um, you know, talk to you and, and your, the center has done so much. Um, I know that you have been an advocate for so long. What was your reaction to, to the Kloss, Jamie Kloss's unbelievable escape? Well, I think the, the in the first moments, just absolute joy. You know that that she was that she right. was able to rescue herself. The first people she re- reached out to knew her face. The you know the second people she reached out to knew her face. They called in right away. That so many of those things. You know there, there was joy, and then. As more and more of the details come out, just the as everyone else, just sitting horrified, trying to figure out what we can be doing differently so that we don't have people hurting our kids. Absolutely, um, and, and you mentioned a few things. I think even the sheriff said that uh, in the first hours was that the, those people you, you're walking your dog in a rural area, and, and the bedraggled teen comes up to you. They, she knew exactly who that girl was, you know, and, and they all knew exactly who she was. And, and the sheriff just said he was so grateful that for all those posters and the amber alerts and, and the signs across Wisconsin uh, and, and, of course, the region, even the country. And, and that's something that that is really something that you folks have worked on, get, getting that word out. And in the end, that that paid off, didn't it? We know that missing kids come home. You know, the National Center for Missing Children has over 5,000 cases where kids have been recovered after being gone for six months or longer. And so a big part, you know, we try to learn from what works. And so when we look at these cases, what has worked 
is people knowing their faces. We don't usually expect the child to be the person to flag for help because they're usually in the in the terror of the situation. It's usually up to the adults to know their faces and reach out. And in this case, you know, she she got free, and then the first grown up that she saw knew her face, and that. Um, and the first group she met happened to work in child protection. Right. The next group she met happened to be an, a teacher. Like, yeah. just it, 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 the the right people in the right place at, at such a, an important right. moment for her to be safe. All right. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, you know, when when parents and and I think kids look at this case, I think one of the things that's so scary, and you know, I think parents are there telling their kids, "Well, if you're going to be on social media, fine, but make sure your, all your accounts are private. Uh, you know, make sure you don't." contact people, that kind of thing. None of that happened in this case. None of no. it. And, and that's what's so uh, scary is, is, you know, this girl was just leading her own life. This family was just leading their own life in, in a beautiful community of Barron, uh, which is a wonderful small town. Uh, what um, what are your thoughts about that and, and how unusual is that? Well, the case, like what you know, happened, and it is very, very, very rare. We have about 105 stereotypical kidnappings in the United States every year, and I think uh, what we we want to get that number to zero. I mean, of let's course. be real; it's 105 is, is still 105 too many. But these cases are so rare, and what what is more common is is abuse by people that the child knows. So we have to be so careful when we're giving out personal safety information for these really rare and horrifying cases that we also aren't re-victimizing kids who are being um, harmed by people they meet on the internet or people that they meet, as you said, you know, in a position of power, law enforcement, in the case that you mentioned. Um, one of the things that I was so frustrated with this case was how many people online were speculating her involvement before we knew anything. You know, I bet, oh, I, I wonder if she did. And it's like, I wish that all those people who did that would stop and look at themselves in the mirror and think, even if she did have something to do with it, which she absolutely doesn't, Right. Um, what message are we giving to all the kiddos who are being hurt by people right. that they do like and they aren't telling anybody? So I think we as adults have to own this problem and we have to own the culture that we shape to make it safer for kids to tell about anything. Right. And, and there was another story this past week that we reported of, of a high school coach who had been involved with a, a young boy that he was coaching and, and got him to do pornographic movies with him. And, and so many of these cases involve sort of the grooming behavior. And that's just as insidious, one one would only hope with those that that people have been latching onto warning signs. But it's tough. I mean, the the, the story that uh, Sloan in our newsroom did on, on this case involving um, in Casson and Rice and Dodgers in Oakland counties. This guy was doing it for twenty years, allegedly. I mean, and, yeah. I mean, it's the offenders need three things to get away with their behavior, and that time, access to kids, and skill. And the more skill that they have, the less time and access that they need. And so when someone does come forward, we can't re-victimize the child by asking them questions right. about, you know, why, why did you say anything 20 years ago or any of those kinds of things? Because this person is using their power and their skill to harm kids. And I think a big part of prevention isn't, um, it, it's about adults taking ownership for us to go through training. You know, if you work in a youth serving organization, if you're kids are in sports, if they're in dance, you know, ask what kinds of training are the coaches and volunteers getting? Because we all need to know the warning signs and we need to act when we see warning signs. It's not the children to flag when there's a problem. We can help them by giving them information about bodies, by talking to them about touches, by going through what if scenarios. But it's really on the adults to say something's wrong here. 
And we might not always be able to know if a child is missing, but we can see if a child is in trouble. Right. And, and I do think that, that that we have made strides. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, back a number of years ago, I was, um, you know, for my daughter's hockey team, all the moms had to be locker room moms to kind of be there in the in, in the locker room while people were getting ready and like that. And we had to go through this extensive training. Uh, it was like a several hours. And I thought, gosh, this is just ridiculous. And then I kind of went through it and I said, you know, this is actually important. Uh, and it was about what what you know, what the boundaries are, what you need to know. And I thought, you know, something, this is really important that parents get this information, but also the kids know that the parents are getting, that the adults in this world are, are some of them at least, are getting some kind of training. But I, I know that training is something that you do um, at the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center. Uh, you go to schools. I know you talk to other advocates. And do you do you also go to police departments as well? We do. We train professionals. You know, my colleague Jane trains on trauma-informed care and adverse child experiences. I train on internet safety um, and um, and tra- missing children. I mean, it's it's really about, as you said, with you know any youth server organization, anywhere the kids are gathered, faith communities. We want these places to be places where kids can thrive, and a, and a big part of that is training for everyone to have the same vocabulary, everyone know the same boundaries because. The flip side is kids need healthy adults to grow into healthy adults, right? right. And so we want to find the people who are um, involved in, for the right reasons and give them the skills and the tools so that they can invest in our kids in a way that's healthy. And um, the more that we can do that, maybe we can catch some of these folks who are hurting kids when they are younger, okay. when, when we are seeing early warning signs to get intervention so we don't have cases like this, you know, because right. our prevention isn't just about telling kids what to do because in this case there's nothing Jamie could have done you know it's about absolutely yeah. where where what did we miss you know where were the and that's what I'll be looking at in the months and, and years when the sort of spotlight calms down a little bit is where there are moments in this person's life who did the harming where we could have where we as a, as a society could have you know stopped this earlier the the one that uh, Jane and I and my colleagues often go to the level three community notification meetings when um, offenders move into the community. And there are usually tons and tons of parents who turn out to those because they're really worried about this one person. And it's part of our job at those to use that opportunity when we have all these people gathered to say, okay, you're here because of this one person. Guess what? That's not the person you're probably going to be interacting with or worried about. Let's spread the awareness around right. to the people we let in our homes through the front door because those are the people that sadly put our kids more at risk. And so using those moments when people are afraid, we know when people are scared, that's not the best time to teach. But when, you know, I'll have a lot more people come to a level three meeting often than a PTA meeting. And so um, wherever we can provide non-fear-based education for parents, we would like to be there. Let me ask you about something. I saw John Walsh, of course, who the great you know child safety advocate who's worked so closely with Patty Wetterling and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. His his son also tragically kidnapped and, and murdered. He actually made a comment in the interview on Good Morning America about bus stops, and uh, you know I believe that J.C. Dugard was on her way to school when she was kidnapped. Obviously, uh, when According to this own Jake Patterson's own words, he spotted Jamie as she was getting on a bus. Uh, he was in, you know, in his own car. Is there is that something that 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 you talk to kids about, or is that something that that is overblown, or or is there a, a situation there where bus stops are are a possible point where people when they were looking children? at those rare cases of stereotypical kidnappings. 
a lot of them happen between the hours of 3 and 5 p.m. And so we think about what are the dynamics between 3 and 5 p.m. that could make that a higher risk time, you know, um, is it the traveling home from school, you know, those kinds of, we do know that 3 to 5 p.m. for those rare cases is a time to be aware. So um, when we do what is scenarios, bringing that up and, but I think the, um, the, the piece is who in the community is aware and paying attention. You know, it, it's, it's not uh, when, when a child's getting off the bus stop, who is there to, who knows which kids are usually there. You know, it's, it's about that community, the, the people in your community who do look out the window, you know, and, and, and if we see something to say something, because um, the, these cases, so rare, it's, again, almost always someone the child knows where that person uses that grooming behavior. Right. But in those rare cases, what we tell kids is we don't go anywhere with anyone who doesn't let us check in with the person who's taking care of us. And so yep. that's our big rule. And if someone's trying to make you go somewhere with them, find any other grown-up and ask them for help. Because the, the good news is most grown-ups don't hurt kids. And so if right. a child picks an adult at random because someone's making them feel scared or breaking their rules or making them feel unsafe, if they pick another adult at random to help them, the odds that that person can help them are very high. Do you think, uh, and we're chatting with Allison Fay, the director of the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center, do you think our schools are doing a good enough job in terms of talking to teachers uh, or, or really being on top of what teachers are doing? And obviously, uh, teachers are fabulous People, they right. are wonderful, overwhelmingly, uh, the overwhelming percentage are, are just great people who do, do wonderful and very difficult jobs and very important jobs. But it seems like there are these cases that pop up where, where it is a teacher or it's a coach. And, and this isn't just here in Minnesota, it's across the country. Is enough being done at the school level to, to monitor this kind of thing? Say- I'm always going to say more can be done because right. that's my world. You know, I'm always thinking right. more can be done. I, I think um, when we look at any profession that serves kids, the wide majority of the people who are, are there are there for the right reasons. Right. And they're often underpaid and overworked and trying to make a difference and on all those different dynamics. But there are always people with bad intentions who are drawn to places where they can have access. We talk about and we're talking about women and skills. men here. You know, it's oh, not, all genders, yes. all genders, all races, all socioeconomic groups. There are people who shouldn't be doing jobs that they're doing. Um, and that's why training is so important because if everybody is living by the same standards, like, okay, this is how we handle um, if, if an adult, you know, for example, in our school, we do not social media requests, do send social media requests of friends to any of our students, right? So if, right. if everyone is trained on that, if everyone, if there's a policy on that, and we ask kids with their uh-oh feeling, someone, if a teacher is giving them a friend request, that's an uh-oh feeling piece. But if there's no training, there's no policy, no, there's nothing to then hold that person accountable. And we will rarely see abuse. What we'll see is boundary violations. If we yeah. call out the boundary violations and get everyone living on the same plane there, um, if someone does have bad intentions, they're called out for boundaries, they know that this community is aware. You know, and if this person doesn't have bad intentions, they just need more training and, um, right. you know, some more support, then we can get that on the right track quickly. So training for schools, for youth-serving organizations, and for faith communities is so, so important because we know faith communities are targeted Absolutely. Uh, so much because it, people see it as a community of trust and they see it as an easily, uh, a community that's easily duped. And so we really want to try to build up the awareness and training there as well. All right. 
Allison, I know this is your, your area of expertise. Um, tips, advice uh, on on social media because you know social media can be such a great tool and it, it's a wonderful thing for kids. So, you know, they can be in touch with their friends, but it, it, time and time again, it it can lead to problems. It's less about the personal information that people share, like what school they go to or things like that. That tends to not be the the big focus when it comes to prevention. It's about the emotional information that people put out there. You know, offenders, they did a survey of offenders who are serving time in prison after hurting kids online. And they said, what are you looking for when you're trolling on the Internet? And the two things they're looking for, number one, is kids who want to talk to them about sex. We need to make sure that we have healthy information for kids about their bodies. So they're not getting it off of online. Um, and then the second one is kids who seem emotionally needy. Lonely so or having a tough that. time. Yeah. And so oh. we tell kids that yeah. you need to have five grown-ups that make up your safety net. So if a person at home is, is making you feel scared, if someone you know is breaking your safety rules, you have four more people. And we say five because sometimes it's the person on the list who's breaking their rules. And we say five because sometimes the first person doesn't help. And when they have that safety net, if someone swoops in online or in real life and tries to separate them from their net, that's that big warning sign. Wow. You know, healthy adults want to be a part of one of many people who are keeping you safe. Unhealthy friends and unhealthy adults and unhealthy relationships try to separate you from people you love. So pay attention to anyone who's trying to separate you from your safety net. No one loves you but me. No right. one cares about you but me. We're going to keep this secret. Those kinds of behaviors um, so it's far more about the emotional stuff. And then sadly, we want to try the, the other big one is to step away from your computer when you're really emotionally worked up, because that's when that's when kids make most of their mistakes as the person causing harm or they overshare. And then later they're trying to scramble. And I think mm. we as adults, if you watch the news at night, the kids rightfully so are saying to me, you're telling me to step away from my laptop when I'm worked up. Have you seen what the people are doing in positions of power? <laughs> you know, when it comes to being worked up and then what they do online. And yeah. um, I think we have to own the fact that it's not the teenager's fault for creating a culture where people are really um, not being kind. On, and we have to recreate that kindness culture. You know, we don't read the comments on news stories for a reason. And it would be great if we could get that to a place right. where, um, you know, kids could could interact with the news without having to see some of that that um, vile and angry um, and, and emotionally abusive stuff that adults are doing to each other online. Well, Allison Faye, uh, just great information. And, uh, you know, folks out there, you, you've got a great website. Um, I know that you go into schools and go to community groups all the time. Uh, really, just thank you so much for your time and your insights this evening. Uh, as always, just a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's so great to use a, 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 a horrific I mean, it's, it's, it's good that we have a chance to, to process something that's big and loaded in a way that gives parents some tools and tips that they Absolutely. don't feel stuck. And that, that's what yeah. you guys do. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Allison Faye, Jacob, uh, director of the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center. She's been there. It's just an, an amazing organization. Um, we do have to take a quick break. That went a little long. Uh, much more ahead on News Radio, News Talk Radio uh, 830. It is 728 in the Twin Cities. That was just great information from Allison Fay, the director of the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center. That organization does so much good. And I do want to let you know that tomorrow on WCCO-TV, Sunday morning uh, at 10.30 a.m., well, actually, we're, we're live at 6 a.m. We've got a whole show for you. We'll have weather, uh, all the latest news, including uh, what's going on with the shutdown, President Trump's proposal. Uh, at 10.30 a.m., uh, very fortunate to have two very important guests 
Uh, one of them is Patty Wetterling, who's going to come on and talk live about her reaction to the Jamie Claus situation and what she's done. You know, for so many years in the aftermath of her own family's tragedy, she has worked with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and, of course, with the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center to get the word out uh, to, to try and make sure these things don't happen. And there are so many cases and, you know, what Allison was saying, so important. So anyway, we'll talk with the – Patty Wetterling will be live to talk about her latest work uh, and then also uh, will be joined live by Representative Ilhan Omar, uh, the new uh, member of Congress from Minnesota's 5th Congressional District who has gotten a lot of national attention. She is one of only two Muslim women ever elected to Congress and it will be very interesting uh, to get her take on the president's proposal uh, to – kind of reach some kind of a deal over his wall proposal, uh, granting a three-year amnesty for the Dreamers. Uh, Congressman Omar, obviously an extraordinary story in her own right. Uh, she actually was a refugee and came to this country as an immigrant uh, when she was just a young teen. So uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and Patty Wetterling live on WCCO television uh, at 10.30 a.m. tomorrow. So please tune in for that. Uh, well, folks, so much more ahead. In the 8 o'clock hour, we're going to have David Schultz. He is back from – he's actually back. I think he was supposed to be back by this time uh, and I've just gotten like exchanged a few texts with him. He was in Eastern Europe and he goes all over the world uh, really to lecture for the U.S. State Department and give talks to, to all kinds of groups. And he was supposed to have an extended trip uh, as part of the State Department's outreach and education program. And it got cut short because the State Department ran out of money because of the shutdown. So uh, I'll be very interested to hear what uh, he had to put it all on his own credit card or, or whatever after being told that the State Department would be paying for his trip. Uh, and obviously so much to talk to about him. So that's in our 8 o'clock hour and I have not gotten the skinny on that. So I can't wait to chat with him. And then coming up uh, in this half hour, uh, Minneapolis, which is such a great city, has so many wonderful little kind of mom-and-pop restaurants and and such a great thriving eating and community scene. And it had this crazy law that you ha could only have a full liquor license if you were within a certain miles of, of the downtown area. We're, we're going to get we're going to get the lowdown on that from Linnea Pomisano. She's a Minneapolis City Council 13th Ward uh, Council member. But it, it just was something that was so antiquated, especially these days where the craft cocktail scene is just so sophisticated and, and such a big deal and people are really into it. Well, that law has been changed. So we'll talk to her and uh, maybe get her take too on the 2040 plan for Minneapolis. So that's coming up. But first, we have to take a break and we're going to give you some weather. Yes, it is cold outside. It's 7.36 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock, coming up in our 8 o'clock hour. A chat with Professor David Schultz. I haven't had him on in a long time because I've been off. He's been off. He's been in Eastern Europe uh, and actually had to cut that short that trip short. Uh, he was working for the State Department and the State Department ran out of money, so he had to come back. So can't wait to hear that story. But right now we're going to talk about really what has been for years a very, I think, odd law that really I think put a lot of these wonderful – 
wonderful restaurants we have in the city of Minneapolis uh, at, at a tremendous disadvantage because they were not able to get liquor licenses, not because of anything they had done wrong, but because of the way the laws were structured. Linnea Pomisano is the council member for the 13th Ward and has been very involved in this and joins us right now. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Esme. Thanks for um, taking up this tasty topic. Absolutely. It is a tasty topic. Well, tell us what the law has been and, and, and the changes that, that are, are coming. Sure. So um, in the past, um, in Minneapolis, you weren't allowed to have a liquor license in a restaurant or in a business unless you were, unless your business operated in seven plus acres of continuous commercial space. So that really limited establishments that could serve liquor to downtown and and the core, you know, the downtown and uptown areas. This change um, is something I've been working slowly on since 2013. um, And voters last November overwhelmingly agreed to remove this restriction. It had to be done by ballot because liquor things have to be done by ballot per state law. Um, but now we are able to use our all the tools that we have at the city to use our regulatory services tools to um, to address some of the issues that we see in terms of neighborly concerns while allowing small right. neighborhood restaurants to serve liquor. Right. And so with the law, and this has been on the books for years, hasn't it? This one was on the books for years? Yes. It, um, it's been in our city charter, so the Constitution right. of our city had it. Yep. Right. So, so the, the problem was you have all of these um, – you, you have these individual restaurants. And Minnesota – Minneapolis is such a, a great community because of all the – I mean really the wonderful restaurants, the wonderful ethnic restaurants. They were able – if they got the license, they could serve beer and wine, but they weren't able to get this liquor license unless they were in one of these centers of seven miles continuous commercial properties. When you think about that, as the council member just said, that's kind of uptown and – Kind of downtown, uh, basically, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of um, what the reaction has been, uh, it just seems like it's was sort of a no-brainer. But this was very controversial in some areas. Uh, yeah, I don't know that it was controversial today. Um, right. Back back a long time ago, there were people that didn't want a bar on the corner in their neighborhood. That was seen as something that they that would seem unsavory in certain ways. Um, now. Um, people, I think, have come to terms with the idea that we want thriving businesses in every little neighborhood note that we can get. I think in Minneapolis, we love our foodie culture. It's been growing. And now um, I think that restaurants can have business plans now that can help to serve some of these higher profit margin kinds of offerings on their menu. Right. And you've got some great restaurants in, in your particular uh, ward. I mean, some of the best. And were they, I mean, that they weren't able to serve hard liquor, were they? So, yes, that's true. Many, or not many, actually, probably only three or four um, would spend a lot of time and, and frankly, a lot of money to go through a very onerous process at the state level to get a special law passed for them at the state legislature. Just for them. Them. Yes, it would be for that specific address, and it would exempt them from this liquor charter law. So it would be a very onerous process. You would have to be a, a, a rather successful restaurant to even be able to afford something like that and navigate that process. 
And then once you did get all of those exemptions, you would be right back to the city to deal with all of the tools that we have and use at the city to regulate, you know, good neighbors and, um, you know, liquor in areas that are predominantly residential. So what um, is the status right now? Um, because it, the voters did approve it, you know, very strongly. Um, mm-hmm. what, what is the process right now? And can you, if you have a small little neighborhood restaurant, can you apply for a liquor license? And is it really difficult to get and, and expensive? Um, so you can... It, all of the voter election results became effective December 7th. Um, just on Friday in our last council meeting, we got to pass the very first one, a great pizzeria called Lola's in the 13th Ward. Was Which the is first, awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm, was the first one. Um, in our very next council cycle, we have three in my ward alone, um, one of the 13 wards of the city. So we do, we are seeing um, an initial flurry of activity from existing restaurants that feel like this is going to be a great new addition to their menu. But I think in time, we will see more newer restaurants opening up, um, perhaps in places like North Minneapolis, north of Lowry, um, where now things that maybe weren't so viable as a business plan in the past might be viable being able to serve a wider variety of things. Right. And, and I also think that there's such a you know, the, the whole craft cocktail boom is just, uh, I mean, people are really into these craft cocktails. I mean, they're sort of works of art, some of them. And, yep. and that's fueling it as well. I think people wanted to be able to go out and have one of these really fancy cocktails, but they wouldn't, wouldn't venture to the little neighborhood establishment because they knew they wouldn't have them, which is really yep. a terribly unfair advantage or disadvantage. Yep. And there are you know, these food places that are so well known for their food, for their local chefs and the local farms and ingredients that they're using, but they were limited in what you could have along with your meal. And right. now that's no longer true. So, okay. yeah, it's well, exciting. Well, listen, um, Council Member Palmisano, um, we have to take a quick break. I'd like to keep you, though, because I would like to ask you about the 2040 plan, because I know it's been very controversial in your ward. You've had some concerns, but what your thoughts are? You know, sort of now about it and how you think it's shaking out. I uh, would love to hear about that. So sure. more with Council Member Palmisano after this on News Talk 830. Hello there, folks. Esme Murphy on News News Talk 830 WCCO. Do want to let you know that uh, St. Louis Park Police Department uh, has put out on their Twitter feed, this is just, you know, a few minutes ago, that there was an officer-involved shooting that occurred tonight in St. Louis Park. We are gathering details, this is, I'm quoting their Twitter, of the situation which occurred at the LaCourt Apartments about 6.30 p.m. Hennepin County Sheriff's Office is investigating. Additional details will be available later tonight. We're going to stay on top of that story. But right now we were chatting with uh, Minneapolis City Council Member Linnea Pomizano. Uh, from the 13th Ward, we were talking to her about her push, uh, really took a number of years to allow small uh, mom-and-pop stores that were not in the inner core of the city to be able to apply for a liquor license. I do want to ask you, though, about the 2040 plan because you really uh, voiced some very strong concerns. I think you were the only – were you the only council member that ended up voting against it? That's correct. Mm-hmm. All right. Um how are you feeling right now? Because I think that the, the issue, it was the D word, density. And this is a push for more affordable housing, which I think almost everybody would agree is something that we all need. But 
you had a lot of concern and pushback from your constituents um, and your ward. What are your thoughts now? Um, well, Esme, I think that we achieve things like affordable housing and affordability in different parts of our city with different kinds of solutions. Unfortunately, the way that the 2040 plan was laid down and drawn out um, really put that same solution down on everyone. Unfortunately, in the 13th Ward, where um, the area that I represent, I feel that it might make affordability and affordable housing even more challenging um, than it has already been. Um, I kept saying, and I, I continue to say, I think we have the right goals for this plan. Affordability, growth while addressing climate change, um, increased mobility, all of these were really worthwhile goals. Where I think the city got it wrong was that this process really didn't take into account enormous amounts of feedback through the process um, and come up with a solution that uh, would adjust to different parts of our right. city. I know, and I know in your area, um, the Linden Hills, that, that whole area, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, tearing down some of these, you know, charming smaller homes and building sort of these big ones that tower over the neighborhoods and what kind of influence that has or what, how it might change the character of the neighborhood. And it sounds like, you know, there was really a neighborhood concern or still is uh, that this was not right for your area. Sure. And just to, to say it, it is one thing to um, we want to be very welcoming to new neighbors. We um, something that we enjoy in all seven neighborhoods that I represent in Southwest Minneapolis is a lot of age diversity on every street. You know, people who have lived there for decades and and now more and more um, newer residents coming in and younger residents and um, and that really keeps it, it keeps a really great sense around here. I do think that um, at the end of the day, it wasn't it wasn't about more neighbors that um, the Southwest residents were um, were giving so much feedback about. It was really about how the whole character and fabric of these neighborhoods that are largely, um, you know, smaller house kinds of neighborhoods uh, would change to be four to six story large land right. use proposed um, buildings, yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, obviously this proposal is moving forward. Um, is is there room, you know, and we were talking the 2040 plan. This is something that, you know, the Met Council requires of co- different communities. As they go forward, is there room for adjustments in the overall plan? I mean, that 2040 is a long time away. You know, things do change. Uh, or is this kind of sort of set in stone and it's going to happen? No, um, I do think this is this kind of dramatic change um, as put forward in the 2040 plan and approved will take quite some time because the city of Minneapolis will have to redo their entire zoning code. Um, We will no longer have something like single family housing or um, R2 zoning, like which was duplexes. We will now have different types and models of zoning. to then retrofit into what exists today in, right. in today's built form environment. That kind of an effort could take several years. So I do hope that throughout that process, there will be opportunities to, to make tweaks and changes to make things suit each, each and every neighborhood of our city a little bit better. Right. And, and as, I mean, as it's still a long way away and this is this vision for 2040 and gosh knows what's going to be going on in 2030. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to tell. And, 
you want to handle this growth process right. That's right. In fact, the the very first thing up and something that we're kicking off this ne- next week in our Transportation Public Works Committee is our Transportation Action Plan. And that will be about how do we put forward, how do cities around Minnesota put forward plans that will accommodate the future of transit? Uh, so things like driverless vehicles, um, things like different kinds of um, hopefully rapid frequency bus transit, um, a light rail and more. So it will be exciting as we move forward and increase. I think if we go about the transportation action plan in terms of how do we increase mobility for people that we'll be able to be on the right track. It won't be quite so scary. All right. Well, listen, Linnea Pomisano, thank you so much. And um, fascinating to talk to you about both these topics. And it's interesting that so uh, Pizzeria Lola is the first one to get that uh, application for uh, a full licorice license. That happened. And you've got three more coming up, as you said, this week? There are three more in this next council cycle. So February 5th, we'll be entertaining liquor licenses for St. Genevieve. For oh, I love that place. Red Wagon Pizza. So, yep. Okay, St. Genevieve, and what were the others? Uh, Tilia, oh, in yeah. Hills, and Red Wagon Pizza in the Armitage neighborhood. And those are all really great places. Um, those yeah. are really, really great places, and they're all in your ward. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, those are really interesting, and it's interesting to see that, that uh, that's spreading. Um, all right, Councilmember Palmasano, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Yeah, Pizzeria Lola, very good. Lydia Palmazano's got some good restaurants in her particular ward, I can tell you that. Um, well, we have much more ahead on News Radio 830 WCCO. We've got David Schultz coming up, and as I've been telling, saying, I can't wait really to get the skinny on what happened to him. He was in Eastern Europe for the State Department, and the State Department was like, hey, we don't have any more money. We've got to send you home. Uh, so I haven't been had a chance to talk to him, but there is so much to talk about. Uh, obviously, the president offering a proposal that he says is a compromise, uh, that if the Democrats give him the money for the wall, then he would give a three-year temporary stay. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it for the Dreamers. I think seven hundred to 800,000 uh, people who came here as children who had been granted under President Obama – the right to stay here, although a path to citizenship was never quite worked out. Uh, but uh, we're going to talk to him about that. Obviously, the government shutdown uh, dragging on. It's just um, my husband has a small retail furniture store out in Bloomington. Um, it's called Sofas and Chairs. And he was telling me that uh, his customers were coming in and saying that some of them had actually gone to the airport. And as they went on a flight, they actually gave the TSA workers gift cards to thank them for working without pay. And also, um, I know that, and I don't know if other restaurants have done this, but um, Eric Dayton, who is uh, the owner of the Bachelor Farmer and also the Bachelor Farmer Cafe, which is right next door in downtown Minneapolis, sort of the warehouse district, uh, posted on his Twitter uh, yesterday that he is offering a free lunch uh, item uh, from the cafe to anybody who can show a federal worker ID badge. So it's great to see you know Minnesotans stepping up in that way. But I can't imagine these poor people having to work, missing two paychecks. Uh, have they've got families to support? They've got daycare bills to support, and then there are the issues of the federal contractors that Senator Tina Smith 
uh, has a bill that that I think is well deserved. Apparently, in the past, there are eight million people who are federal contractors, and in past shutdowns, they haven't gotten any back pay, so they're they're all furloughed. But these are people, and when you think of a contractor, you know, you kind of think of oh, that sounds like a fancy fancy job. But many of them uh, have jobs like they're janitors. Uh, these are these are not high paying jobs. And Senator Smith has a bill that would require the government to give them uh, back pay if they have, in fact, been working, which I think certainly sounds like that is something that should be done. So anyway, I want to get uh, uh, Professor Schultz's take on all of those things. It'll be interesting to hear what reaction he was getting or hearing about to the shutdown in Eastern Europe because I'm sure that they are following this uh, as well, and also want to talk to him about the many issues involved in the legislature this session. Um, earlier this evening, we talked with Representative Frank Hornstein about uh, the hands-free bill. It looks like that has a chance of kind of going through uh, a little more controversy about legalizing marijuana, but that's something that uh, now Governor Tim Walz pushed in his campaign, and I think it sounds like a lot of people like that idea. And actually, I went around and did a story one day talking to people about what they'd like to see the legislature do. And in a number of neighborhoods, I went to um, uh, North Minneapolis. I went to uh, Roseville, Burnsville, uh, and I think downtown. And a number of people said they would like to see some kind of form of legalization of marijuana. Uh, the devil in that one is in the details as well. And then also, uh, once again, we're hearing clamor about some kind of proposal on gun control. It's not clear if all of that's going to happen this legislative session, but uh, Representative Hornstein and the governor and other legislative leaders saying they are going to work very hard to make sure that this legislative session uh, does not end with the annual chaos that emerges on the 19th of May every year uh, when it is so difficult uh, to understand what the legislature, what the heck they're doing. All right, folks, keep it here. David Schultz is next. You're listening to News Talk 830. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseballs and boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.